House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, we're back now, and we have the great Dr. Karen O'Keefe from the UK Live, and uh, we'll be talking about all sorts of subjects like we mentioned earlier. Now, let's start out with um, how are you doing tonight? Okay. Hi, Adam. How are you? Good. Good. It's been a while. So, what have you been up to lately? Um... Quite a bit, actually. Um, I'm now, well, since we last spoke, I've now um, taken up a position at a university in England, Buxney University, where I'm in charge of uh, all of their crime degrees, so criminological psychology and police studies with criminological psychology and psychology and criminology. So I'm in charge of that and also employed there to do research on parapsychology. Great. And so I've been quite busy um, involved, actually last, which last summer, testing mediums over the summer, coming up with interesting methods of testing mediums and chatting to them about the, the process involved. Um, so be busy with that. And uh, Ghostlands, of course, is a big project that I've been involved with um, since, well, for, for, I guess, the Ghostlands team for a couple of years, but it's really only appeared online uh, since Halloween last year. but uh, So I'll be busy with that, busy writing, as always, um, and doing research. Yeah, just keeping very, very busy. Well, that's, such a, that's great. You know, and the Ghostlands we'll talk about. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated with that. I, I, I've, I've loved what you've done on that. That's just, uh, it's, it's, in, it's in my segment that I'm doing on the show called The Most, yeah, the Most Wanted Scene. I, I, it's just, uh, um, I love that show. Brilliant. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, now, so what brought you to the new job with the uh, university? Just uh, um. Um, Well, it's, it's interesting how it happened, actually. I was originally employed up at uh, Liverpool um, because of a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Matthew Smith, who's a parapsychologist. And um, he encouraged me to apply for a parapsychology position at Liverpool, um, and then I left there after a few years, went down to the south of France, was employed at Toulouse University. And then uh, um, it was about five or six years later, so 2012, Matthew and I had kind of lost touch. And uh, he ended up in a position at Buxton University. And when they were looking for a new senior lecturer, um, he put my name forward. Wow. Basically said that... Uh, he was another parapsychologist who was an ideal person to have in the department. And, uh, yeah, I got the position. I've always, I guess that a lot of people know me because of the parapsychology work and because of Most Haunted and my TV work. But I've actually always worn two hats, a paranormal hat and also a criminal psychology or forensic psychology hat. And so this university position is perfect for me because... It means I'm in charge of all the crime degrees and, and ensuring students learn about forensics and legal psychology and profiling and you name it, whilst at the same time the university is very, very happy with me doing parapsychology research. And that's not as simple as it sounds. No. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, 
to do parapsychology research in an academic institution is not the easiest thing in the world. Certainly, you know, science and, and various academic institutes or universities um, don't view parapsychology as a real scientific discipline. Yeah, so, yeah. I, guess, I guess it's all the live stuff and all the stuff going on on TV that's kind of altered it some, kind of made it less popular. Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, you, even even asking members of the public about their perception of what a parapsychologist is, and a lot of people think of just, you know, a ghostbuster, yeah. a ghost hunter, that's it. And, and the media is to blame for that, um, you know, and I say that even being part of the whole media ghost hunting campaign, um, and yeah, and unfortunately, academia, uh, universities, and mainstream science generally, uh, they listen to what the media does. They listen to how, you know how how the media portrays these things. And it's just lucky when I was up in Liverpool and now at Bucks New University that my colleagues there they they see the media stuff as separate and they recognise it as kind of the entertainment industry, but a way of representing the field. And yet, um, scientific journal articles and conference presentations that I do, that represents the serious side of the research. Yeah. So why do you, why do you think that is? Why, why don't they... I mean, they've got to know that there's some real, real people like yourself involved. Like, um, I know there's not... I guess there's not a lot of parapsychologists like in the world really no uh, and it wouldn't it it wouldn't be wrong of me to say that probably within the world today if we're talking about parapsychologists educated up to phd level and and doing a phd within parapsychology you're probably talking about 50 or 60 tops in the world you know whereas you compare that to a hard science physics chemistry or biology for example and you can add any number of zeros onto that figure in terms of the number of scientists employed in those disciplines. And so for that reason, there isn't a great representation of parapsychology. And in answer to your question, why do I think there's this perception or misperception of what parapsychology is? Partly, it's the history of parapsychology, which of course you know all too well. Um, You look at the history of it and there's accusations and instances of fraud, throughout its history of certain scientists being caught uh, cheating their data, but also psychics being caught cheating as well. And and that means that parapsychology has a reputation that it has to constantly fight to get away from. Right. And and mainstream science looks at a lot of parapsychology and just still considers it to be related to the psychic at the end of the pier or Ghostbusters going into a haunted house. Right. That's, you know, and, and as, soon as, as soon as my colleagues see that there are peer-reviewed journals and that there are conferences and there, there is good science going on, then, of course, it changes their mind instantly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just... Um it just seems it seems strange, but I understand it. You know, I mean, there's there's also it's probably not you know the the scope of us chatting here tonight, but there's a huge kind of philosophical and and world changing aspect to it as well, which is if you're talking to physicists and mainstream scientists, 
there's the idea that if any of this stuff is true from their perspective, so things like telepathy, precognition, but even ghosts as being, you know, um, spirits, dis discarnate spirits, if all of that stuff is true, then it means that the rules of physics or the laws of physics have to change, essentially. And, and I think partly parapsychology, therefore, can come across as a little bit of a threat to the laws of mainstream science. You know, and for that reason, you're dealing with scientists who have kind of a huge belief system in, in physics, in their own belief system, and, and therefore it's a threat to their belief system that this stuff could possibly be true. And, and it's easier to come from a very cynical point of view and say, well, it's not true at all. Um, you know, I don't even know why you're researching this stuff. And I think that's the sort of, the sort of perception that I get a lot of. Yeah, you know, I, it's, you know, it seems to go on in, in, in science, period. You know, look at even with the, the talk about all the, you know, the global weather changing, right, and stuff. And, um, some say that it is and some say it isn't. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, 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 you look at that, you look at a lot of areas of mainstream science and the battles between cynics and, on the one hand, dogmatists on the other, both of which, you know, are both ends of the spectrum in terms of their beliefs, but they're both quite similar in that they're not listening to each other. Whereas the best way to be, of course, is sceptical, somebody who's in the middle, who's questioning but listening to both sides, listening to the evidence. But all too often you do get, in, in science, but also on the other side of the spectrum, you do get people who just don't listen. They have their blinkers on, essentially. Right. Now, now, now so your other field, now, I think you were involved in that before when you were uh, doing your doctorate, like the, the serial killer's um, makeup, you know, sort, sort of... Yes. Uh, that's certainly something you're into. How does that relate to the parapsychology? Like, it seems kind of different. It, there, there's a large part of it which is very different. So I'm involved in, or have been involved in the past, in, past in terms of risk assessment of uh, violence. Um, that's kind of predicting whether somebody's going to be violent on, violent on release from prison, uh, for example, or, or on release from a young offenders institute. There could be a similarity there because it's about prediction, prediction of future events, albeit that it's based on, on evidence and based on what we know. There could be a similarity there, but the rest of uh, forensics and criminological psychology is very different. Apart from the interesting crossover that you get within an area that I like to call psychic criminology, um, where there's any aspect of the paranormal that's involved in criminal investigations, uh, and so a prime example that everybody probably knows is psychic detectives. Right. Uh, these people who claim um, that, on the one hand, they have psychic abilities but can use those abilities um, to aid in a criminal investigation. Um, so that's one side. And then there's the other side, which is um, the quite common claim that you get from some police officers, um, investigators, that they have a sense that something's going to happen. So, you know, the sense when they go into a particular building that something, that there's danger around the corner. Um, and so that's another overlap. It's dealing with uh, the police, which is the criminological psychology part, but it's also dealing with parapsychology in terms of that weird sort of predictive sense. 
I guess that would that would lead to kind of um, back into the science side of it is that is maybe it's part of our DNA or something that we were born with, or do you think that's yes. something? Well, there's, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of merit to thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective. And there are some evolutionary parapsychologists that say that this, uh, this predictive ability um, um, is something that we all had um, thousands and thousands of years ago when it was something that we needed. We needed to know if there were dangerous animals around the corner or their dangerous animals present. We needed to have that sixth sense, as it were. But as the world has become more developed and there's less of those dangers around, then we've lost that ability. Um, and it's only fleeting in a certain number of people. Um, but there's some recent research that's been conducted over the last five or so years uh, about something called presentiment which is um, a professed ability to sense something in the future, but it's an unconscious sense. Uh, and so several researchers have set up experiments where they show people randomly photographs, and within those photographs, there'll be a random picture of a spider or a snake, something that people are phobic about or they're fearful of. And in measuring people's physiology, when they're presented with those photos, what tends to happen is people's physiology uh, reacts fearfully immediately before they're shown the spider or the snake, even though, even though they're not aware that it's going to happen and they're not consciously aware of becoming fearful. Their physiology changes, heart rate goes up, they sweat more because of they're just about to be shown um, quite a scary photo. And so that's good evidence, good laboratory evidence, for this idea that there is that there might be some sort of inherent predictive ability, some inherent sixth sense that, uh, like I said, we once had, but now perhaps we've lost it. It's buried there in our unconscious somewhere. Right, right. And how do you tie that to not so much a psychic, but maybe a medium, someone that's dealing with the past, uh, you know, with with death. You know, mm, because that's a very different we're, we're, we're seeing quite a different ability in that respect because uh, precognition and presentiment is all about predicting the future um, whereas with the mediumship it's about talking uh, to spirit of course which as you know which can be uh, different abilities clairvoyance, clairaudient clairsentient um, so the messages from spirit or that the contact with spirit can come through various uh, methods, but there's no predicting the future in that respect. Um, parapsychologists would say, however, that maybe there's some sort of similar process simply because it's a sixth sense. It's tapping into some sort of general intuition, as it were. You know, and I think maybe with mediums who talk about working clairsentiently, there's more of an intuition uh, element to it rather than specific words that come through or specific messages. I think the uh, clairsentient mediums kind of relates to presentiment in a better way. And that must be, so I, that must be really hard to, uh, from a science point of view, to, to really test or to have some sort of a, you know, a, a closed environment where you can test someone. Um, even especially in the with the future relevance, right? Like psychics. And yeah, 
very, very difficult. And it's the reason why the word PSI exists, psi, um, in parapsychology, because very early on, uh, parapsychologists realized that if you're trying to differentiate between telepathy, precognition, um, and clairvoyance, clairvoyance being, you know, the, the action of the mind on an object. So if, if you draw something and put it in an envelope, how can I work out what's on that? A piece of paper in the envelope. Well, I might use some. I might use a form of clairvoyance. Parapsychologists realise very quickly how if, if I get that particular drawing correct, am I using telepathy, so mind to mind communication? Did I have a dream about it last night, and then remember the dream today? So it's a form of precognition, or am I interacting with the drawing in some way? So essentially, saying that it's all very confusing that we can't work out exactly what the ability is. And that ties into what you're saying, that as parapsychologists, it's very difficult, number one, to work out if somebody has some form of paranormal communication, what is that process? What is actually going on? But also, yes, you're right, how can you set up experiments to specifically test a specific ability? I know Caroline Watt um, in Edinburgh has been doing some good work on dream telepathy, um, she calls it dream telepathy, dream cognition or precognition, uh, but essentially getting groups of people to dream um, about a randomly selected um, clip that's selected by, by a computer at random uh, the following day and getting people to record their dream imagery the night before. And so there you've got a prime example of something where if they're correct, it can only be precognition. It can't be telepathy, it can't be some other form. Um, so it's difficult, yeah, it's a very, very difficult to distinguish between these abilities. Have you done any research on that, like any, any uh, yourself, any tests on, on mediums or psychics? Uh, yes, I've done lots of tests. In fact, my PhD was focused on testing mediums and finding a way to test mediums in a very, very controlled environment so that if they were successful, you know, the only explanation you could say is that it's some, you know, it's, it's mediumship. Um, and that was my PhD, and since then at Buxton University I've been involved in mediumship research as well. And it's certainly achievable. You can do it in a very controlled environment. You work with mediums to make sure that they're comfortable with that environment, because as soon as you start to get too clinical, there's the worry that you can lose their ability. So you need to really work in collaboration. But the, the other aspect of it is that I think one of the main findings that I've come up with is that um, you can't actually test mediumship communication in the lab. All you can test is paranormal communication. And by that I mean if you had a medium in a lab, you ask them to come up with a reading for somebody in a highly controlled way, there has to be some verification of the information that that medium came up with. There has to be somewhere down the line. And for that to happen, if they are accurate, it means that maybe what happened in that particular scenario was that there was some form of telepathy. Or maybe they accessed some records somewhere in an ethereal plane. What I'm trying to get at is even though a medium might say that they're getting the messages directly from spirit, there's no way that we as researchers can verify that. All we can verify is that the medium came up with the information and it has to be some form of paranormal communication, but it can't be anything else. 
Now that in itself would be fantastic, but it's just saying that I don't think we can actually test mediumship in a lab. Mm, that's just what I was going to ask. Then, then how is it you could go about doing that? Because yeah, uh, very tough. Really, and it's and it's very tough. You know, um, it's very tough even just thinking, just thinking about setting up an experiment because mediums work in very very different ways. You know, individuals work in different ways and they're comfortable in different environments. And a lot of the time, if you ask a medium to come into a laboratory in the university, like I said, it's it's maybe too clinical. It's not comfortable enough an environment, you know, to be able to get information from spirit. Right, right. So so, so really the atmosphere and, and what's around, but that brings back to suggestion as well. Like when you're out in a, on a ghost hunt or looking through a haunted place, sometimes knowing a lot of the facts about the place is going to create some sort of thing in your mind, right? Yes. Well, that's you're describing there exactly, you're describing there the, the kind of basis of suggestion, absolutely, is that, you know, as soon as you tell people a place is haunted, forget any information, but just tell them a place is haunted, you suffer from a situation where they can interpret any natural environmental changes as being as a result of... Um, ghosts, a ghostly presence. And it could be something as simple as a, a change in temperature. You know, if, if there's a change in temperature and somebody knows the location is haunted, they may attribute that to a ghost. Whereas put them in an office building and don't tell them anything about the building, don't tell them that it's haunted, but just have them in there working away. If the temperature drops, they might put the heating on or they might check to see if the, the window's open. Right. You know, so suggestion plays a huge factor in haunting investigations. Yeah, that's a, you know that's a big question right there. That's uh, how, and also so what strengths do you do you actually attribute to being a parapsychologist in such ghost hunts and searches and stuff? You mean what what sort of role do you think a parapsychologist plays? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like uh, you know when you when you uh, I'm not I'm not mentioning any shows, but like when you when you see a demonstration or a show. And some have, like a real parapsychologist, a doctor, someone that's studied, and a lot mm. of shows don't. What do you think the, uh, the, the advantage or the strength of having that parapsychologist on the show is? Well, I think the advantage is because of our training and our knowledge, um, and it's taking a very skeptical perspective of, of anything paranormal. And by that, I don't mean cynical. I mean skeptical in the true sense of the word, which means we question the evidence. Um, looking for answers, basically. Or yeah, other. looking for answers, but also we're not we're not you know we're not expert physicists, we're not expert environmentalists, but by the same token, we have the knowledge about psychology. We're, most of us have psychology training in our background, so aware of these things like suggestion but also things like, you know, hypnagogic experiences, sleep paralysis, stuff like this, you know, which, which can occur. Um, but also we're aware of the environmental explanations for what's going on. Um, and so I think it's that knowledge that you can bring to an investigation. Um, I think a team of parapsychologists involved in an investigation, solely parapsychologists, would probably be rubbish. You know, yeah. you do actually need investigators. You need paranormal investigators to, you know, those that have field experience 
in there. But I think a parapsychologist lends that alternative explanation and that knowledge to what's going on and a level headedness as well. Right. I speak for myself in that respect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, the rational thought person there, right? Yeah. Okay, we're back now with uh, Dr. Karen O'Keefe, and joining us now is his lovely wife, Anna O'Keefe. It's glad Hello. to have you. Thank you. <laughs> so, so when we left, we were just talking about getting in uh, parts of an investigation, and uh, and I was saying earlier, and and, it, and, I, and I have to say it again, it's been been a thrill. I I, I just love the Ghostland uh, episodes you you've done, uh, both of you. It's, it's it's just amazing. I, I think it's refreshing. It's something good. I, I'd love to see the whole category go this way. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Uh, thank no, you. It's, it, no, thank you. I mean, thank you for doing it, and I hope it. it uh, where, do, where do you see that going? Uh, uh, where are you taking that? Um, I think. Well, <sighs> I'd like to say onwards and upwards, and and do more and more of them. Um, the thing is, we've got a Ghostlands team, so we've got episode one and episode two online. As we speak, and it's a, you know, we've got the core Ghostlands team, and we've already done more investigations. But as you can see from the way we put it together, it's it's not really a TV show to speak of. No. It's more of it's insights, more of, isn't it? Well, it's more of an investigation. A lot of people were saying to me when I was on other shows, they said, "Well, why don't you do your own?" And Anna and I were chatting, and she was saying, "Well, what, you know, why don't you just do an investigation?" But have it filmed, but not be not the film. The filming shouldn't be the focus. No. And so that's why we put together these investigations, where you're basically just getting an insight into quite a long investigation that's conducted by the Ghostlands team. So, in terms of where we think it's going, well, as we as we put more and more episodes online, what you'll find is we'll react to what people say. So. Uh, with episode one, people were making comments about the music that we put on there, and so we changed that for episode two, and mm. um, the way we presented the EVPs as well. We'll constantly change that, and we'll update technology as well. You know, we've already got some analysis software that we'll be using for the next episode, um, something that hasn't been seen before. So, you know, we're, we're just constantly evolving, but also, I think just giving people that insight to an investigation. We're not going to get any more... We're not going to get glossy. It's not going to be showy. No. It's not going to turn into, you know, kind of a... Um, soap opera, no? Yeah, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a soap opera. I mean, you know, the, the team will stay, the core team will stay pretty consistent, but it's a team that's together because they are investigators. Um, as with a lot of these shows, but it's not about the team... And I hope that's kind of what you're saying about it is that it's about the evidence, right? Right. Fundamentally, you know, and and that's really what I think all of these shows are trying to be. And I, you know, some of the popular shows on American and English TV, they're trying to be about the evidence, but they do get a bit caught up in all the soap opera mm. and the characters and that sort of thing. And what we're saying is, well. You know, people will learn about the characters as we go along, but fundamentally, every episode has to be about the evidence and yeah. what we do with the evidence, how we analyse it, what we think about it. And if we find any evidence. And if we find any, yeah, right. absolutely. 
So, so now you both come. Yeah, now, when you met and 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 that was before this, of course, and then you started on the show. You both have kind of have different perspectives when you met, right? About paranormal. Yes. <laughs> Even that was kind of a maybe. Uh, uh, so, so well, let's let's start with Anna. So, so where where do you come from, uh, paranormal? Like, what got you into it? Yeah, I mean, I, I met Karen through the Ghost Hunt events. Um, and before that, I was sort of, I wasn't really interested in paranormal. I had a few experiences that I couldn't explain. And um, about three or four experiences, actually, that I couldn't explain. So I was, I was sort of like on the fence, but more leaning towards the believing that there's something there. Um, so when, of course, when I met him, it was, uh, it was uh, interesting to sort of, our uh, discussions on the whole subject. So a lot of heated ones as well. Yeah, there were some heated ones. So, okay. The differences are what makes it exciting, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. And we still disagree now, you know. There's... Yes, and even, you know, the first, the first investigation that we did, well, we've done investigations before together, but the first investigation that we did um, that formed episode one of Ghostlands, you know, was a, a location, a Second World War bunker, and that's a key location for Anna that she just does not like no. at all. You just genuinely mm. well, you hate that. Place. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I found the location when I was doing a risk assessment for. I was trying to find a location for a charity event, and um, I found this World War Two bunker. And on my site visit for the risk assessment, I you know I just initially I just did not like the place. It was just the weirdest atmosphere. And, you know, and I took some photographs, and that's when some of the images you see, actually on the Ghost Sounds website, you'll see an image that appeared. When I got back to the hotel, this image, this like sort of outline of a shot of soldier in front of the guy that was showing me around, so, mm. yeah. yeah. Just don't like it. And we've been, and you've been back a few times, and yeah. I've been back a few times, and um, I guess what doesn't come across with Ghost Sounds is the fact that when we're doing these investigations, some of them, um, they're not just one night. They, you, basically what you're getting is a snapshot of quite uh, a lengthy investigation, a number of visits. And on one of those visits, it was just Anna and myself mm. in the Second World War bunker. To the, point where, to the point where I had the camera, the video camera, and I said, right, I'm going to just walk around in the dark. Didn't have a torch or anything. Mm. I'll just walk around with the camera. And Anna couldn't go in. No, I had to sit outside in the gun ring area. Oh yeah, you were you were really scared in that, weren't you? I saw that. Yeah. You, you, yeah, so you wouldn't spend, you wouldn't take a million million. No, and even now I would not. No, in all the back. money in the world, I would not go back there. It is the most. It's just the It's just a weird sensation. I can only describe as whatever is there, and I believe there is something there, even though we do disagree on this. Yeah. Um, it's almost like it doesn't want you there, and it's just a real feeling of just a hostility. That's what really strikes you as soon as you go in this place. Um, and unfortunately, it seems to sort of follow me around, <laughs> follow me around the whole time. Yeah. Being there. So, uh, so, yeah. so, so I take it that you're not as much of, let's say, a skeptic, is, if it's the word, as let's say, as Karen is. No, yeah, I'm not. No, I've, I've, yeah, there's some experiences that I've, is that there's just there's no way that you can say, yeah, that there wasn't something there before. You even had when when Anna and I went there on our own, mm. and I was walking around with the camera. I was at the far end of the bunker mm. filming myself and I think you can actually see that sequence on the episode where I'm sitting alone in the dark mm. and Anna was outside and she heard footsteps coming towards her yeah. and said well I called out I thought it was Karen 
because um, I heard a distinctive sort of four footsteps walking towards me, and then like a, like a slight pause, and then a turn, and then it's and then three steps away. So I shouted out to you, and there was no answer. And so I shouted out again, and no answer again. And by this time, I was starting to sort of feel a little bit panicky. And I went into the entrance of the, you know, and just screamed your name, didn't I? And then I heard these like running in the back. There's no way it was you, because I heard in the faint distance, I could hear these yeah, little heavy footsteps, and you were pelting back towards me. <laughs> um, but you'd heard something, didn't you? You thought you'd heard something. Yes, well, you can see me on camera saying, as I'm sitting here on my own, yeah. I, can, I can hear drips, I can hear mm. movement, I can hear things around me. And yeah. it was just... I'm approaching it from a sceptical point of view. I'm just sitting there trying to get familiar with the environment, mm. but it was just odd Even that I was said, there. Yeah. I was there, and then you heard. And we were locked the in. There was no way the general public could have got into this location. It's no, completely we padlocked had the, in. We, yeah, we had um, access to it, so. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you let yourself be padlocked in? Ooh. Yeah, no, we didn't know. I made sure. Yes. <laughs> It was a lock-in. It was a real lock-in. Like a famous show that's on, on TV at the moment. You've got lock There's a lock-in. Yeah, lock-in. <laughs> well, so, 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 now, you know, so I see that with Anna, but Kieran, so now you're a parapsychologist and you're a little more sceptical on that. Yeah. Do you ever get really scared then? or do you, like, I, I understand Anna's fear. You know, I have it myself. I'm, I'm more, in, of course, I'm on the believing side more. In, but so how do you feel about it? Do you, I know you're sitting there trying to rationalize these noises and, and drifts yeah. and things. Do you actually get sometimes out of that mode where you actually get scared? It's, yeah, it's interesting. The the bunker, walking around the bunker myself uh, in the pitch dark with just a, a camera to kind of light the way, I didn't feel remotely scared. I felt excited by the possibility that I might come across something. And I think that, for the majority of locations, for me, it's simply that. It's excitement. Because, you know, I've devoted my life to investigating this stuff and I'm not going to run away or be scared, you know, should anything appear, if anything, the ghost that appears in front of me will get bored from the battery of questions I'd ask it or photos I'd take. But, and, and there is a caveat with that, that, you know, I can go to the most awful locations and taking it to North America, Eastern State Penitentiary is a great example, or Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Um, being in both of those locations, haven't felt the slightest bit scared. SS Great Britain, which is a ship in docked in Bristol, a uh, ship that used to take um, often criminals, but uh, also members of the public over to America and Australia over a hundred years ago, walking into a particular area of that ship, and I felt spooked. I wish there was a better word for it. But I did feel spooked. I just didn't like it. Um, and I'm glad I had that experience because it gives me empathy for the sorts of experiences that Anna has had. It makes me realize, well, this is the sort of feeling that she's talking about. Just this sense that you don't like it. Simple as that. Right. And, and so that does that kind of... Um put you a little bit more in the believing side or is that still <laughs> no no no. <laughs> no no not going that far no. no it puts me more in the empathy and sympathy side for people that have those experiences because um i've had the experience i know how emotive and how intense it can be however at that point being on the ship you know i'd love to go back and recreate the exact moment where i had that feeling and check to see that there wasn't any infrasound present, 
for example, low-frequency sound, which might have caused that intense feeling, or if there was any particular electromagnetic fields that might have caused that particular feeling. Who knows? Um, it certainly wouldn't have been suggestion. It wouldn't have been the fact that it was a haunted location, and therefore you know, I was prone to suggestion, because otherwise, having been in thousands of locations before, why didn't it happen in those locations? You know, so um, I guess my problem, if you want to call it a problem, and Anna certainly calls it a problem, <laughs> is that uh, if I have an experience like that, I'm always trying to rationalize it yeah. rather than just go, yeah, that could have been, you know, could have been a presence, could have been something, yeah. you know. I mean, that's that's good. I mean, it's it, it's always good to think about. That. I mean, I still do that, too. I, I try to rationalize everything that happens when I'm in an investigation. So. You know, so so speaking of that, now the steps. What what are your process like? Kind of how? Um, what are the areas that? You, what scientific data do you collect for these shows? Um, well, in terms of the the Ghostlands investigations, it's led by um, eyewitness testimony, and so it's initially research, um, speaking to uh, people that work in the location, the staff but also speaking to eyewitnesses about their experiences, but in um, using, again, a particular tool from my forensic psychology work, which is cognitive interview, uh, which is used by the police to uh, get the most accurate information from eyewitnesses. So you get that information, and from that you can um, pinpoint exact areas within a location. Now, those are the areas that you should focus the investigation on. Right. Um, because essentially there's no reason for um, focusing the investigation on other areas where people haven't reported anything. It doesn't, that for me, it doesn't m make a lot of logic, really. There's no logic to it. So the first thing we do as a Ghostlands team is um, pinpoint those areas and then measure environmental variables in those areas. Um, and you can often even focus as well. If there's particular sorts of experiences that people are having. So if they're all reporting hairs going up on the back of their neck, for example, then you might focus on infrasound. If they're all talking about temperature drops, then you would um, you know, look for temperature anomalies or humidity aspects, that sort of thing. But you focus on all the equipment, measure as many environmental variables as you can, which includes infrasound, um, electromagnetic fields, humidity, air pressure, temperature, um, you name it, and have that recording for as close to 24 hours as you can. Um, you would also focus on particular times when people have had the experiences. If there's a repeatable time, then you'd be interested in the data from those particular times. And then the next step would be to send in individual members of the team uh, the preference is some of the investigators would know uh, the location, would know the stories, and some of the investigators wouldn't. Um, and then you'd get them to record their experiences. Camera, of course, is the, is the preferred method, but the way we have it set up, we've got CCTV, but also audio recorders everywhere, so people can be in there individually, record their experiences, and the hope is that those that their experiences would tally up with what the eyewitnesses have reported. So that's why it's quite important not to have suggestion for everybody. 
to have investigators going into the location blind. Um, and then our next step is to build up, is to go from individuals mm -hmm. to pairs or to groups um, to see if that makes any difference. Um, and constantly, whilst this is also going on, the environmental variables are still recorded. Um, and the logic behind that is, if you're recording temperature, um, humidity, you name it, in a particular area of a location, then it might vary if somebody goes into that location, and you need to be able to have that information. Right. So, so yeah, so that's it. We're constantly recording environmental stuff and we're constantly recording. We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step by step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Camera and sound as well, but with the focus being on particular location, particular areas within the location. And also time as well. There's some... For example, in the second episode, when we were investigating the theatre, there were particular areas that we investigated during the day, because that's when people reported their experiences. Right, right. Yeah. So, so where do you plan on, what, what's your next place that you're going to investigate with Ghost Lines? Well, we've already done a number of investigations since those first two. Um, so we've already done the investigations. Um, we're at the stage now where we're going through and analyzing, um, analyzing which CCTV. which we love, don't we? Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, it's long, isn't it? That's a yeah, lot. That's, that's um, my job at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, that's nights just constant CCTV. Yeah, I mean, there's a quick fix. There's a quick way of doing it. Um, Hire someone. Know, just to highlight any any movement of objects, if people have reported movement of objects, you look at the, f the first frame and you look at the last frame um, to see if there's any movement and you kind of map them onto each other and see if there's a difference. So that's a quick way of looking for movement of objects within a, within a CCTV view. But beyond that, now you, you have to look at it real time. Um, and of course we have the, the Ghostlands team that you see we're all involved in that analysis in terms of looking at CCTV yeah. footage so we're looking at that, looking at the environmental variables the environmental variables are very 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 quick to analyse um, because it's all downloadable data so that's quite easily done uh, the EVPs um, I say EVPs that, that would imply that there's a phenomena the audio files, that's another analysis that happens and that takes time, um, and with that, you know, me having a full-time job, and we've got a little one here as well that we have to look after. 
So we're a little busy at the moment. And so even though we've done investigations, in terms of getting episode three up online, in terms of showing the highlights, um, we're kind of a little bit reliant on budget mm. because we need some time for editing and also just more so time, actually, to yeah. get it done and get it up. But we're hoping to do it at some point in the next few months. And even if we don't, Anna and I have already talked about alternative things that we could put up on the YouTube channel, such as kind of longer, you know, some of the vigils that, yeah, that some yeah, of the team have done. Yeah, haven't made it to the... Yeah, yeah. And, also, and also maybe some interviews with some more of the team as well, so people can get the different perspectives mm. of what's going on. But uh, it's a case of people subscribing and, and they'll get to hear as soon as something new is put onto the channel. Right, yeah, that's, that's excellent. So now I also noticed that you used uh, Chris Conway. Like you, so you're using a medium yes. through this. Is that sort of your plan right through the whole, uh, the, the whole Ghostland experience? Is to have a medium around? Oh no, no, not at all. We used Chris um, on uh, the, the first book. and second episode on on those two locations mainly because we work very well with Chris. We have a lot of respect for him. Um, but his involvement in the Ghostlands team is as any other investigator. So if we do use a medium, we don't use them in the same way that you do find some teams. They'll listen to what the medium says, and then suddenly they'll follow exactly what the medium says. So if the medium says, oh, I'm getting the impression that there's the spirit of a little girl in the corner, suddenly the investigation then turns into, right, let's have people sitting in the corner or let's do a Ouija board and try and contact this little girl. They're, they're reacting to what the, the medium says. Right. With Chris, he was brilliant. He was very happy being part of the investigative team, and his experiences became part of the evidence and treated the same way as any of the other investigators, in that did it match the sorts of experiences that people have reported in that location before. And so, yeah, so we used... Him for the first couple of episodes, uh, we might have other mediums or the other claimants in other episodes. Chris might come back for you know another investigation, but it's it's not like I said, it's not a medium-led team in the same way that you find with some other uh, other teams. Right, right. So, so but you're open to having the the uh, medium and an information kind of, kind of like collecting its information. It's collect it's collecting the information whether it ties into uh, previous eyewitnesses. As a skeptic, parapsychologist, I'm always very wary about the knowledge that mediums have prior to visiting a location. But by the same token, you've got to bear in mind, even though Ghostlands is my vision, it's also our vision. So it's Anna's vision as well as mine in terms of you know giving a, people a, an insight into our investigations. It's also Tim and Amy's, um, who are the investigators from um, a paranormal investigative gathering service um, and for them uh, they do like to involve mediums you know and so on the one hand I, I may not use mediums at all if I do then they're part of the investigative team and they're not it's not led by them but on the other hand Ghostlands is truly a team effort and so Tim, Amy and Anna, Anna were certainly very happy to involve Chris, because it's also, you know, part of their belief system, too. Right, right. So, Anna, you believe in psychics, then, or mediums? <laughs> um, 
I'm sure you're more open yeah, to it than I, I am. Yeah, I, I am. Yeah, definitely. More I mean, open to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, sort of, I've worked with so many mediums um, in the years I used to do ghost hunt events. So uh, sort of the last eight, well, eight, nine years. So, yeah, I mean, they've, they've, you know, there's some things that come out and investigations that, that, you know, you couldn't possibly know the information, even though Kieran disputes that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, there are, yeah, I've seen, you know, I've seen some amazing things. So, I yeah, am, but I'm more open-minded, I think. Yes, I think that's, that's right. a good way of putting getting, it, yeah. Getting whacked. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> well, you're, you're kind of like Kieran, but on the opposite side. Like, you're yeah. more like, this is how it is, but you're open to his skeptical yeah. view, yes. kind of, in a way. And, and, and I, guess, I guess for that reason, that works well when we're doing the analysis, too, doesn't yeah. it? Because there's some, sometimes... And episode one was a prime example where we were analysing the footage from the bunker and you were highlighting stuff that I was just being immediately dismissive of. Yeah. I was falling into the trap of in, in being cynical. Mm. And some of the stuff you go, well, no, actually, look at this. You know, this isn't just a simple shadow here. And one of the shadows ended up being the third piece of evidence, yeah. the prime piece of evidence. Which you initially overlooked. Yeah, which I initially overlooked. Mm. Hold my hands up and say, yeah, I missed that. So it's kind of, it's a good thing, actually. It probably makes your investigation better. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I was saying it's brilliant. (laughs) 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 I'm sorry, I've got to say it's brilliant, haven't I? Hi! (laughs) Okay. It works very well. It works brilliantly. Really well. He says through gratitude. No, it does. <laughs> yeah. No, it's I, 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 you know, I, I'm totally, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm, I'm behind it totally. I think it works great. So, yeah. thank you, thank you very much. Oh, okay, we're back now with uh, Dr. Karen O'Keefe uh, from the UK, and uh, we're going to uh, pick up right where the uh, left off. And uh, so, so with investigations. Uh, was there any place that sort of stuck out for you, um, and being from the skeptical side, that sort of you'd love to go back to, or something that you think there's more there to investigate because you're not quite resolved? Um, well, I think there are a number of uh, locations I'd love to go back to. We were mentioning, we were chatting just before the break um, about Ghostlands, and I know Anna would hate me to say that she's uh, she's gone up to bed now, but. Uh, I'd love to go back to that World War Two bunker um, for a longer period of time. I mean, the, the episode that we showed is a, an investigation that was conducted over a number of days, but I'd just love to go back again with people that uh, potentially don't know about the location um, and visiting it for the first time and see what sort of experiences they have. So that's one location I'd love to go back to. Um, another location would be... Um, Hampton Court Palace, right. which is a particular favourite uh, of mine, and I think is a holy grail of locations for a lot of investigators, certainly in this country, mainly because of access, because getting access to the location is very, very tough. And I tried to get some, you know, uh, well, school of parapsychology students involved in an investigation there for, and it took years to try and get security clearance, and it just never happened. It's a very difficult location to get into because it's one of the royal palaces, right. essentially, but a, but a location where uh, the historical accounts go back hundreds and hundreds of years, and there are written accounts, you know, pages and pages and pages 
of accounts and, and of course the association with Henry VIII as well makes it a fascinating location um, so I'd love to go back there I spent two weeks there living there it's a hard life Ooh. <laughs> I guess somebody's got to do it two weeks at uh, living at Hampton Court uh, Palace back in 2000 which was very rough Oh, <laughs> but uh, thoroughly enjoyable and that was with a team from the University of Hertfordshire and we were particularly focusing on looking at suggestion as a possible cause of hauntings but also looking at um, the magnetic component of uh, actually the building um, particular uh, lime that was used in the construction of the building had a magnetic component to it which might have uh, affected people. So I was there for two weeks, but I'd love to go back. Um, aside from that, those are places I've investigated that I would love to go back to. There are also locations that I would love to investigate um, that are historic locations that I've never had the opportunity to investigate, and one of them would be Borley Rectory, um, which is you know, known as the most haunted house in England, um, because of an investigation by Harry Price uh, a number of years ago. But unfortunately, it's burnt down. Oh. No longer exists. Um, but it's, again, one of those holy grail locations. I was lucky enough to be involved in an investigation of an area called the Nun's Walk, which features in Harry Price's writings, but in terms of the Borley Rectory, nothing, nothing more. There is also a last location, Sorry to wrap it on. But no, no, this is interesting. Oh, oh, um, uh, there is a location in Cambodia, too, um, but that's just because it looks like uh, such an amazing place, which is a particular village, ghost, ghost town almost in, in Cambodia that I'd like to investigate. But no, I digress. The last location or the last investigation, which is not strictly a location, would be the Enfield Poltergeist. Um, it's the location would be Enfield, North London. Right. Um, that would be the location, but we're dealing with a poltergeist case, um, a poltergeist case from the 70s. Um, it was a case that ran from August 77 to September 78. Um, but because it was poltergeist, the claim was that it was focused around a young girl at the time, the young girl that was living in the house with her family, uh, Janet Harper, who was age 11 at the time. And so it's an odd one because I can't really go back to the location. Um, the poltergeist, by the very nature of poltergeist phenomena, it ran for a short time and that was it. And then there's been nothing since. And that's kind of the, the, the nature of poltergeist phenomena. So it's one of those things that will never happen. Um, I've seen the outside of the house, but certainly there's no phenomena that has occurred since that investigation that was done back in the 70s. But, yeah, for me, that is the ultimate case, the Enfield. Yeah. Well, I'm getting into the poltergeist. And, and a case like that, like Enfield, um, there, it must be really hard to get the evidence from it. I mean, evidence from the 70s must have been pretty, pretty weak. Yes, well, well, um, yeah, weak in terms of uh, an accurate record yeah, of what's yeah. happening. Sure, but um, strong in terms of the evidence that's claimed by the investigators. Um, some of the evidence, or a lot of the evidence, is audio evidence 
um, as in recorded by tape, right. on tape, you know, just uh, the old records of the time. Um, I was very fortunate to get um, one of those tapes from an interview that was done uh, with the family and also with the neighbours at the time, um, in which you can hear things happening. So you can hear the investigators um, reacting to the fact that some of the drawers opened in one of the items of furniture in the lounge as they're talking. So you can hear that, but that's it's it's evident it's anecdotal evidence because all you're hearing it is an audio recording. But you're right. Back in the seventies, the the method of collecting evidence was weaker. We we now we can collect evidence on smartphones. We can, you know. Anybody can film and photograph when they're doing investigations, but at that time we didn't have that luxury. So we're really reliant on the investigators' um, uh, reports of what happened. There were some photographers involved, so we got some photographic evidence. There is a couple of video videos of interviews with Janet, but that was during a period later on in the Poltergeist case when. Um, she started, her voice started to take on the, the gruff tone of the uh, um, the person who, who said the poltergeist was. Um, but beyond that, yeah, it's, 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 you're right, back in the 70s, it was just, uh, um, yeah, 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 we can't look back at it and analyze it. Basically. Yeah, and that's kind of what I mean more by, by weak. I wasn't kind of meaning that they did a bad job. I was thinking more oh. that... Uh, they only had so many tools to work with. Yes, and, yes. And it's hard for us to analyze those uh, yes. that long ago, right? Yeah, because all we're, all we're basically analyzing is, you know, a number of reports. I mean, that's interesting enough. You've got a number of different investigators that were involved in the case. But long term, you had Guy Lyon Playfair and Maurice Gross, who's now passed away. But they've got their investigative notes from that period that you can compare their notes and also there are a number of other investigators that came in as well and you can compare their notes as well so that's interesting but you're right it's not the the level of evidence that we would expect nowadays which is film you know photography but also um very high-tech sound recording too they just didn't have that luxury yeah yeah back to the old cassette tapes and stuff yeah. i mean it might have, it might to a certain extent it might have made the case what it is you know I look back on that particular case with a lot of nostalgia um, mainly because I was fascinated by the paranormal as a young boy from an early age from six seven years old and that was the time when Enfield Poltergeist hit the uh, hit the headlines so I do look back at it with a bit of nostalgia and the fact that you you know you see these reel to reel recordings, um, you know, and, and you've got just cassette tapes as well, and you've got kind of grainy photographs. There's a nostalgic feel about it, um, and I find that fascinating. Yeah, uh, how would you what, how would you define a poltergeist? I've heard all sorts of explanations. What it really is, you know, mm. and and what, what's your description of it? That's a very good question. Um, people often say poltergeist is a German word, um, meaning noisy ghost. Uh, ger- um, German geist, meaning ghost, and polter being noisy. Um, and that's often how it's defined. It's a, it's a ghost that 
um, is noisy, produces unexplainable noises, um, but also can produce spontaneous fires, um, electrical disturbances, movement of objects, that sort of thing. Um, essentially a mischievous and noisy ghost. Um, in speaking to uh, some colleagues, some German colleagues, they say a better derivation of the word poltergeist comes from a German word, um, and I can't get the pronunciation right, but it's, a, it's basically the first part of the word is polter, and it's when you're in a house and if people say, what's the noise coming from that other room? then you refer to it with your hand and say, oh, that's, and it's polter. Yeah. And you're referring to a little child, a living child, who's in the other room, but but making noises and being mischievous. And that, I think, is a, is a better description of what poltergeist cases generally are. It's that, it's that mischievous, almost childlike quality of the phenomena that's, a, that's produced. Um, and sometimes that can start to get mischievous with kind of a negative evil quality about it as the poltergeist case progresses. And so that's kind of generally the, de the definition. But what's interesting is in parapsychology, there are some parapsychologists that differentiate haunting cases and poltergeist cases and say that hauntings are particularly spirits, whereas poltergeist cases are centered around individuals. And that's either because they have consciously or unconsciously created the phenomena. That it's actually not a ghost at all. That the individual is creating the phenomena. And so therefore some parapsychologists call poltergeists uh, RSPK, which is recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. Almost as though the individual is using some form of PK uh, to move objects and create noise. What, what's your take on that source? Like, so you sort of think it's coming from the person or from from a past spirit? Um, I, I, it's quite interesting. Very early on in my parapsychology career, I I very much bought into the idea of RSPK, and that it was the individual causing it. Now I'm not so sure. Certainly, there's um, a book by Alan Gould and Tony Cornell called Poltergeist. Uh, in which they do a survey of poltergeist and haunting cases, and they actually show that you cannot do that differentiation. You cannot distinguish between the two so easily that you will get some haunting cases where there's occasionally a noise that occurs or a haunting case where an object is moved or there's a spontaneous fire or that sort of thing. So you'll get a crossover or you'll get a situation that's described as a poltergeist case and yet the family move away and people in that location still experience the phenomena. Well, if it is RSPK, then there's no way, you know, that the phenomena should continue. If the, if the family leave, the phenomena should follow them. Mm. Um, and so I'm of the opinion that uh, I, think, I don't think we should be too quick to distinguish between the two. And I don't think we should be too quick to say if there is poltergeist phenomena, that it's because of a particular individual. Because the other thing is that William Roll, who's the parapsychologist that came up with this idea, um, he, said that, he said that the phenomena is normally focused around, or the majority of cases, anything up to 70%, are 
are focused around adolescent girls because of the emotional turmoil that they're going through. Now, if that's the case, if 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 it's genuinely because of um, you know adolescent turmoil, then we should be seeing poltergeist cases all over the place. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> the logic of it. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. how often do you come across a poltergeist case? Right, right. And none of those have been anywhere near on the level of Enfield. And that's in 25-year uh, research history. Yeah, it, it just, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so now, where, just, just for everybody um, out there, like, where did you get your start? What brought you into it? You mentioned Poltergeist in the movie and, and that in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what led you to do everything that you do and brought you into it? Or was well, it no, I mean, I had an interest in it, and I was reading... Unexplained magazine, and I had uh, um, uh, was looking at Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World as well, that was on the TV at the time, and fascinated by horror and ghost novels from a very very young age. So all of that was was an interest, but it never never for once did I think that it beca- could become something serious until, and it's about thirty years ago now. Um, well, it is exactly 30 years ago because it's the anniversary this year of the movie Ghostbusters. Right. And I saw that film as a boy where they were parapsychologists, they were doing scientific research um, in a lab in Columbia University, and I thought, you know what, that's what I want to do. That's exactly what I want to do. Now, I don't have my proton pack. Uh, and I don't have Ecto-1 the car, um, which is a real shame. Ultimately, uh, that's what started me out. That's what started me on a a career of parapsychology, you know, to the point where um, I even contacted Columbia University at the time and asked them about their parapsychology lab, and they said, well, no, yet again, we have to tell you that it's just a film and we don't have such a lab here. However... There is a lab down in North Carolina, an institute of parapsychology, which was then the Ryan Research Center, and that may be, you know, of interest to you. And uh, so I got in contact with them, got a bit of information from them, and then, you know, rolled forward uh, five or six years, and I was doing a degree in the States and working with some of the parapsychologists down in North Carolina, just outside Duke University, so... That's what got me started. Must have been a lot more challenging back then, too, right? Yes, challenging. Yeah, challenging also because of the way it was perceived, but also challenging because of the access um, to uh, materials to research. You know, I was conducting a, an undergraduate thesis as part of my psychology degree on parapsychology, and it meant that every other weekend I would have to do the eight-hour drive down to North Carolina from where I was in Washington um, and go through all the journals and books. Now, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But, of course, nowadays you can just jump onto the Internet and find any number of sources in parapsychology. So it's a, it's a completely different world now than it was, um, you know, all that time ago, 25 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and also, like you say, challenging... Uh, in the respect of also um, conducting research. 
because even though mainstream science, like I said today, kind of views it in a particular way, because of technology, we can conduct research in an easier way. You know, we can do ghost investigations a lot easier than we would have been able to back then. Yeah. Do you, do you find it a big difference, like when you, you've done investigations in both the U.S. and in Europe, um, do you find a difference in the attitude of general public or even people you investigate with or places you go to? Uh, yes, yeah, very, very different. But uh, there are two camps. There's, uh, in North America, there's one camp which is uh, focused on the gadgets, focused on the scientific side, um, who will basically like to go into a location armed to the teeth mm. with as many gadgets as they can get. Um, and I think that same camp exists here in the UK as well. But then there's also um, uh, investigators in the States um, and North America generally who I think follow too much what the medium says um, in terms of even if, if a medium is speaking in you, with vagueness and ambiguity and not picking up on anything specific they'll often follow what the medium says and focus the investigation on that. Um, and I don't, want, I, don't want to make it, I don't want to make it sound arrogant that I have the only way of investigating and I think it's the right way. I think that's far too arrogant. I think there are any number of different ways of investigating. You know, there's the spiritualism route, there's the use of seances, Ouija boards, the use of equipment or just back to basics and not using any equipment at all and just using your human senses. You know, that's a method as well, which is equally useful. And I think all of those, who's to say which one is the right one and which one is the wrong one? It's just quite interesting that in North America, there there seemed to be a little bit more of an emphasis of, ha of having mediums involved in, in investigations. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it makes for, well, it's bad for me to say, but it kind of makes for more entertainment too, right? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, because I'm coming from the medium side, right? You know, I've yes, done that. Of so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to slam. I mean, I'll probably get some mail, but it's not, not what I'm saying. It's, it's, it just, it, it does add to the value. I mean, yes. there, there, there's also shows that are very popular that don't have mediums that do well too. So I'm not. Oh, absolutely, you know. absolutely. And I think there is that other camp, which is, or other group, which is that that kind of wanting to be more scientific in their approach. Um, I think the word science is misused when it comes to ghost investigations. You know, I think even, even the process that I was explaining in terms of um, ghost lands isn't necessarily a scientific approach. You know, it's, it's uh, a scientifically minded, but it's not necessarily science as we know in terms of laboratory research. But uh, you're right, it's... it's um, the use of a medium or, or kind of having a medium involved in an investigation and listening to what they say, it, it makes it, in effect, more exciting, more interesting. You know, anybody that's actually going out there and doing these investigations knows that sometimes it can be like watching paint dry. Right. You know, because nothing, you know, the, I think the shows do, it's, it's, they create this warped picture that every time you go into a location, something happens. Yeah. The reality is it's just not like that at all. No, no, but they're cutting out a lot of the, the dead time, right? Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Excuse the pun. Yeah. 
absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, that's it. So, so, so now, do, do you think there's a more of a belief in the in the general public in Europe, in England, than there is in the United States or Canada? That's sort of. A, do you find that? Is, do you have more skeptics? Uh, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. I think there's more of a belief maybe in North America. Okay. To be honest, well. Well, well, well there's tough. certainly more shows now. I mean, there there there's yeah. definitely more more in the mainstream now yes there's more yeah there's more shows and more in the mainstream and i think you know people often say to me do you think you know shows have uh, done ghost hunting have uh, created a bad situation you know have, have, have uh, kind of given ghost hunting a bad reputation well there's two sides to it the advantage of all of the uh, of all of the media stuff um all the tv shows is they've made discussion um they've made things like this us doing this radio show you know um people um going out on an investigation every weekend all of that stuff happens because of these tv shows you know so it's, it's made it more acceptable to talk about it and to believe in this sort of stuff and i think that's a good thing that's a really good thing yeah yeah more accessible to people. Mm, now, yes. was, did you think these investigations going on? I, I mean, just your opinion, or um, what, a lot of these investigations. Do you think that okay? So, for instance, if there is a ghost, that we're sort of affecting it in a negative way. Well, that's an interesting. Um, I've spoken to colleagues before at particular locations um, who have said, "Wow, if you'd only been here five years ago." Um, you know, stuff was happening five years ago. But unfortunately now, every single weekend, we've had ghost groups come in and ghost events come in. And it's almost as though um, they've tired the ghosts out. or The ghosts have got bored, in a way. Um, you know, the, the constant groups kind of trudging through a location has almost, has almost killed... The ghosts, if that's the right expression. <laughs> There's another pun. <laughs> sent, yeah, sent them on their way, as it were, without, without, you know, without specifically saying they've gone to the light. But, you know, that sort of aspect. But, yeah, there's another part to it. You're right. You know, having human agents, having people in a location um, can affect what's happening in that location, too. You I know. think it would be kind of disturbing. Yes, it could be you. Uh, dis, it disturbs the atmosphere. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think it possibly could. It could really disturb it. And also, we're just talking about about human beings generally. The emotion um, and feeling and personality of the people involved in those investigations can alter the the um, atmosphere or the location in in a particular way. Oh. So if if you have people who with in a particular mood or highly negative or aggressive personality, that can have a different effect to somebody that's maybe more positive. Right, and that those influences are felt. I mean, I, I don't know if I can explain it, but it's like when you walk into your room and there's been people that have just had a fight or there's something that happened. Yes. You can just feel the tension without any words. And uh, yes. even the way dogs react to each other and animals, the way they can communicate without you know, speaking. Absolutely, and and part of that, um, I think, is tying into this idea that maybe with mediums, 
what they are, um, you know, and yourself included, what may be going on is that you are better at picking up those sort of environmental changes than than everybody else. You know, and then it, and then that forms a trigger for then the information to come through. Yeah, you see what I mean. You know, and it specifically works very well with clairsentient mediums as well. Yeah, you know, and and I agree uh, a lot, but not always. It confuses me because being in that side of it, there's times when uh, I I don't pick up things going on at all, as in as in live things like people that would right. that have happened in a room or things gone on, and other people I'm with do that have oh. no sort of sensitivity at all and they sort of know and pick up things and tell me and I'm like oh <laughs> I guess I'm not working today I don't know <laughs> right. well that's interesting that can, that goes against in a way what I've just said it, well it does and that's sort of um, you know yeah. I've, al- I've always questioned my own sort of things that happen to me so that's why I, I have no problem talking about it because I'm not I, I'm never trying to hide anything it's just sort of this sure. it's, I, it happens I can't explain it, and I, I don't understand it, so I definitely bring it up because maybe someone else can help, you know. Yes. Yeah, and I think I think that's why I've carved out a lifetime career for myself because at the moment parapsychology can't really explain what's going on with mediums in terms of the process. The same way it can't, it doesn't have a good theoretical basis for any of the abilities going on at the moment, and you know that's it's that, and it's also looking for that ultimate proof. You know, it's, 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 like I said, it's carving a lifetime career out for myself. Yeah. Well, we're glad you did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, just, just off the subject on the end, just before we get there, I just wanted to ask a few, just a few quickies, like about your, your impressions of zombies and, uh, and uh, let's say, uh, you know, the, the Bigfoot and things like that, if you have sort of any opinions on that. Yes, well, that's kind of a little bit out of the area of parapsychology, Loch Ness and Yetis, that sort of stuff is cryptozoology. But in terms of zombies, I'm a huge zombie fan. And I've written quite a bit on zombie psychology. That is the the psychology of zombies, but also the role of psychologists in a zombie apocalypse. And I find that absolutely fascinating. And I've got quite a bit of writing and and some TV stuff coming out um, this Halloween exactly on that subject so it's worth looking out for oh that'll be exciting that's good i look forward to that so now did you want to just give your uh contact information and everything before we okay uh... yes uh if people want to check out ghostlands just go to uh, youtube.com forward slash ghostlands online or type in ghostlands online into the search engine and also you can check out the website www.ghostlands.co.uk where you'll find information about it. And from there you can link to uh, some of my other sites and also um, check out some of my daily activities on Facebook. If you look up Dr. Kieran O'Keefe on Facebook or at Kieran O'Keefe on Twitter, yeah, you'll get regular updates from me. Well, that's great. I'll tell you, it's been a real pleasure and it's certainly... It's always an honor, and I think that it's uh, amazing. A first show in the new series here, and uh, you couldn't have helped me more by doing it. So, <laughs> an absolute pleasure. It's been lovely chatting with you again. Great. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
there. I'm Kendra Adachi, and I host the Lazy Genius Podcast, a show that helps you be a genius about the things that matter and lazy about the things that don't. But here's the kicker. You get to decide what matters, not me. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to give you a new way to see. Episodes are around 20 minutes and are full of practical, helpful information, as well as a lot of permission slips to do what makes sense for you. New episodes drop every Monday and cover a broad range of topics from laundry and getting dinner on the table to finding work-life balance and organizing your inbox. So I invite you to give the Lazy Genius Podcast a listen. Together, let's stop doing it all for the sake of doing what matters. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.